And welcome to another episode of the Bakari Sellers Podcast. Today we have a brother on here who is a brilliant journalist, and we've had some brilliant journalists on here before, but he sets the bar, none other than Dion Rabowen. How you feeling today, man? I'm feeling good, especially after that introduction. I feel great, man. I feel like I'm, I'm a very important person now. You're in the office now? You, you even have an office. You're not out there at one of the like cubicle desks I see, huh? <laughs> Oh, this isn't my office. This is an office designed for precisely things like this. Like if we're doing podcasts or video, this is the office where I shoot my videos. So that's what this is. This isn't my office. Don't don't get it twisted. Nah, we're just going to call it your office from this point forward. <laughs> okay. So we start each one of our shows by having our guests walk us through the arc of their careers. Um, and you've made the rounds as a journalist. Can you talk about your various beats from your first beat with The Hollywood Reporter uh, to now at The Wall Street Journal? Yeah, The Hollywood Reporter, really, I was doing um, entertainment coverage, uh, a lot of like what's going on in movies, who's out mingling with who, just kind of that sort of Hollywood insidery type stuff. Um, I worked out in L.A. for a couple of years doing all kinds of freelancing from high school sports, uh, covering like water polo, track and field, that sort of thing. Um, football and baseball, all that, to uh, a lot of that kind of Hollywood glitz and glam entertainment coverage, um, to writing about real estate, uh, things like that. So I freelanced for a number of years, then joined this uh, newspaper in Atlanta called the Atlanta Daily World as an editor. I worked out of there uh, for a number of years. It was actually a, a black newspaper um, and worked there for a couple of years and got laid off at the uh, the beginning of 2014 and decided, you know what? I've always wanted to go to Brazil. I've always wanted to go to the World Cup. So bought a ticket to a one-way ticket to Brazil, um, figured I could get, if I was already down there, I could get some outlet to pay me to write stories. And ended up finding a few, so did some on-the-ground reporting in Brazil related to the World Cup um, and kind of business, finance, ongoing interest there. Uh, after that, was down in Latin America for about a year or so, moved back up to New York, um, started working for a couple places doing straight business reporting. I worked for Reuters covering bonds and currency markets, uh, then moved on to Yahoo Finance. I had a little time writing a newsletter and then uh, came on and joined the journal and, uh, in October of 2021. So I've been here at, at uh, Wall Street Journal for about a year and a half now, uh, covering financial markets, all that good stuff. I mean, that's a tell me the skill set and how that translates from covering who's being seen with who in the Beverly Hills Hotel to bond markets. Yeah, it's it really, I've learned that it's all about knowing the right people to talk to and knowing the right questions to ask. And that translates across different beats, whether you're covering who's who of Hollywood or you're covering bond markets, right? It's knowing what to ask and who to ask those questions to. So it's been, la and, and my job right now is a lot of looking over data, trying to find things that are irregular or unusual or point to some patterns that we've seen in the past that have indicated either some good things, things are getting better, or indicated some bad things, things are getting worse, and try to put that out there, talk to some smart people and get some insight around, okay, what's happening, why is it happening, and what's the next logical step given what we've seen. It's also rare to see black reporters in this space with the financial markets beat. Um, but we love what you do. How, if all, does your live experience shape how you see the markets and your reporting on them? Mm, that's a great question. I love that because 
it's it shaped it a lot because there are just a lot of things that catch my eye that I find don't catch a lot of other folks' eyes. Like one thing that I've been doing a lot of reporting on or trying to talk about through either it be my videos, uh, live streams, or just the the stories I'm writing is what's going on with credit right now. Folks are taking on a lot more credit. Um, and really, that's a lot more borrowing money, right? At this time when we still are seeing pretty high savings balances, and that's unusual. And I, I took that on, and I think I've had a lot of interest in that just because of the background that I have and coming from you know some of the, I guess, the, the lower income background that I, I came from and seeing folks struggle and have to take on that credit and understanding how that can impact family budgets, how that impacts neighborhoods, and how that impacts, you know, folks in general, right? And when what those things are saying. So I think because of the the way I grew up and the things that I've seen, not just coming from uh, you know, a, a black or African American background, but growing up kind of in the middle of the country. I'm originally from Denver, uh, not originally from the East Coast, like a lot of folks. And Having that background of really growing up and seeing a lot of struggle in my neighborhood. So I, I've seen a lot of things that I think a lot of my colleagues haven't. And I think that makes me in tune to a lot of things that sometimes they are not. Let's talk about FTX and the aftermath of F FTX. Um, why did FTX fail and our crypto exchanges safe? That last question is kind of loaded. That that whole question's a little loaded. Um FTX, and we're going to have a trial about this potentially, and there's a, still a lot more to happen. But broadly, what's been alleged by a lot of these agencies that have come after FTX and some of the shareholders is that FTX failed because of fraud, because uh, Sam Bankman fried was, or SBF as he's known, uh, wasn't moving money the way he was supposed to. Uh, when you kind of step back and look big picture, okay, what was the issue at a lot of these crypto firms? There, there has been, and we've seen in some of the other ones that have failed and gone down, a lot of fraud, a lot of people just straight stealing money. Um, there has also been the issue of when crypto's not just trading and people aren't consistently buying, buying, buying because the price isn't just going straight up, it's hard for a lot of these companies to make money. And that was kind of the issue where the tide flowed back out. And you know they say, you can never tell who's swimming naked until the tide flows out. Well, the tide <laughs> flowed out, and and we saw FTX was uh, was in there with without a lot of clothes on. And there's bigger questions: Are crypto exchanges safe? Um, I guess it depends on your definition of safe. For someone like myself, if I'm just speaking personally, I have been a bit wary of them because a lot of them have terms that say, if we run into financial distress, you have essentially given us your crypto, and that can become our crypto. If you know we start to go under, we owe money to creditors, and you know your crypto. A lot of people are putting a lot of money on these exchanges, and then if the exchange goes down, if they go bankrupt, if there's some sort of issue in financial markets, well, you've transferred ownership effectively. So what was your money or your crypto becomes their money or their crypto, and then they, when they have to pay it off to creditors or things of that nature. So that's not all, but that certainly is what was happening at FTX and what's happened at a lot of these big firms is, you know, when they get in trouble, their customers' assets become their assets. And that's not something that as a customer, I'm particularly comfortable with. This episode is brought to you by Jiffy Lube. Cars can be a big investment, so it's important to take care of them. I once got a car that I started out with 25,000 miles on. I got it to over 200,000 miles because I took care of it. 
You know how you take care of a car? You take care of the maintenance, the oil, the brakes, all that stuff. And if you don't, you can have a car just completely fall apart. When your car needs maintenance, head to Jiffy Lube. They provide automotive excellence at speed. Get your oil changed, brakes checked, tons of other multi-care services. It's all done by expertly trained technicians who actually care about taking care of you and your car. Jiffy Lube, car more. To find coupons and start an instant online estimate, visit JiffyLube.com. This episode is brought to you by Cars.com. When you add your car to your garage on Cars.com, you'll unlock access to real-time insights into how much your car is worth. Plus, view its historical and projected value to decide when to sell. So when the time is right, you can secure an instant offer from a local dealership or sell it yourself on Cars.com. Start tracking your car's value with your garage on cars.com. So I remember seeing a lot of ink about how black folks were benefiting from crypto investments and then the market failed. So I assume that we were disproportionately hit by the market crash. Can you speak to what the crash meant for black and brown investors? A lot of folks saw crypto as a way to kind of catch up. Black folks have really been left behind in terms of investing because you've got a lot of white families who not only have a great deal more wealth, but have an understanding of investing. And, you know, you've got uh, mom and dad who have been investing because their parents taught them about investing because their parents taught them about investing. And they naturally passed it on to their kids where a lot of black folks haven't been invested in the stock market, haven't had things like 401ks. Um, homeownership has eluded black folks at a, a higher level. So you don't have a any kind of knowledge or experience with investing. So when crypto came around, you saw a lot of people saying, hey, here's this new thing. Everyone's sort of on the same level here because you can't have, uh, you know, three, four generation, uh, three or four generational, uh, you know, investing in crypto, right? There's no generational experience because it's a new asset class. Um, so we can now, there's this idea that this is a meritocracy and you can get on the ground floor with everyone else. Um, that was true. And when crypto crashed, I think a lot of people had pinned their hopes and dreams on that. And we haven't really seen a lot of numbers because a lot of this information, you know, there's not Federal Reserve data on who was invested in cryptocurrency or how much. But just anecdotally speaking, obviously, there were a lot of folks who thought this was going to be their ticket to the middle class or their ticket to wealth. And that didn't really happen. And it's we're a bit back at the drawing board because it's not like crypto wiped out to zero, right? Bitcoin is still around that $20,000 per coin level. That's still much higher than it was back in the early days, uh, you know, 20, the 2010s and before 2020 when things just went up like a rocket ship. But a lot of people bought in at the at the highs and now we are not at the highs anymore and we are very far down from some of the highs and those folks have lost a lot of money. What's the future of crypto, particularly in terms of what Washington will do in response? I know the answer to this, but I, people are going to ask anyway. And do you see much in terms of legislation or regulation and what's going on with the Biden administration in this marketplace in particular? That's the regulation question is very interesting because there are a lot of people who want to see SEC chair Gary Gensler do more. Uh, the SEC has, kind of, has effectively come out and said a lot of cryptocurrencies are securities or we think a lot of cryptocurrencies are securities and so we need to regulate them. 
Um, and But they haven't really stepped forward and concretely said, okay, here's what we're going to do. All of these companies do this, all of these companies do that, or all of these coins need to be regulated this way. So it remains to be seen. There's been a lot of reporting by my colleagues on why that hasn't happened. Um, but again, as, as the market has turned around, there's been a lot of call for more regulation of some of the crypto firms um, and cryptocurrencies and tokens themselves. So it, that remains to be seen. It really depends a lot on what SEC Chair Gary Gensler wants to do. The Might administration has has been pretty vocal in terms of saying, more there should be more regulation. Uh, it's just a matter of what that regulation is and what it looked like. Um, and I forgot what was your first question. Uh, just their response. I mean, will they will they actually take? Will Congress take an action on this? The unfortunate thing has been that Congress doesn't seem to really understand cryptocurrency very well or what cryptocurrency regulation would look like. Um, certainly, I think a lot of folks would like Congress to step in. I think the SEC would really like it for Congress to step in because Congress has more power to you know, make things legal, illegal, to pr provide some kind of hard guardrails. The SEC can just say, we can take you to court. If you're doing these things, we can take you to court, we can prosecute you. But a law from Congress actually sets legislation and makes things legal, illegal, defines parameters, says you can do this, you can't. Um, and that's things that agencies like the SEC, all they can do is follow the law as written and then say, okay, we can come after you uh, if you're not doing these things. So there's, it hasn't seemed likely that Congress is going to do this because it's a thing that is, there's a lot of technical knowledge involved. There's a lot of it, it's a new thing, right? And Congress regulating new things, it has not been historically all that good at. <laughs> True. Let me ask you a question. It's not on script, but um, something that I've been watching. We've seen the SPAC market cool off. We've also seen the IPO market cool off. What does the future of those markets look like? And were SPACs just a kind of flash in the pan phenomenon and maybe IPOs will come back around in the next year or so? IPOs, well, let me just step back and, and talk um, big picture. So we've seen those things slow down because the stock market is down, right? From where it was about a year ago in 2021 and into the beginning of at least of 2022, stock market just was going up and there was really only one direction, right? Like stocks just, stock prices went up and that had to do with where interest rates were and what was expected of the Federal Reserve. Uh, really, the thing about investing and, and markets in the, the age we live in is it's all about central banks. And right now, central banks are trying to cool and slow down the economy. And the stock market, you know, when you put a, when you issue stock, you want the price to go up so that folks who bought in before can cash out and they can make money back on their investment. But if you don't have confidence that the stock market is going to go up, that prices are going to rise, you're not going to want to put new stock out there. You're not going to be as anxious or as eager to issue new stock to IPO, things like that. So the SPAC market really was uh, the, the huge growth, I should say, in the SPAC market was much more a a kind of reaction to the environment we were in where prices were just going up and it didn't really matter what the company did, what you sold, whether you really ever had plans to make a profit or not, people just wanted to buy stocks. And as that environment changed, the environment for SPACs, for IPOs changed because, well, it was, you had to have a really compelling story. You had to have your numbers together. 
and you had to be making money. And over the last 10 years or so, none of those things have really mattered. It was just, do you have a story for growth? Can your company grow? It doesn't matter if you make money or not, just grow, grow, grow at all costs. And that emboldened a lot of these companies to, you know, put out, to go public via SPAC because you didn't have to deal with the same regulations. You didn't have to open up your books as enough. There, open up your books as much. There wasn't as much regulatory oversight. Well, I shouldn't say regulatory oversight. There wasn't the same kind of requirements for an IPO as there are for a SPAC. And it was a lot more retail investors, regular everyday, what they call mom and pop investors, buying into a lot of these things. And a lot of them weren't doing a lot of due diligence. So you saw a lot of crashing and burning uh, in the SPAC market. And I think folks kind of got wary of that as the environment changed. So we're in a new environment. Um, I think the IPO market will certainly pick back up. I don't think we'll ever see SPACs back where they were um, unless we enter another environment with you know 0% interest rates and the Fed pumping $120 billion a month into the economy. Uh, unless we get back there, I don't see a reason for SPACs to come back up where we've just got this speculative fervor or fever uh, in markets. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Hi, it's Stephen Colbert, and I'm here to tell you about The Late Show Pod Show, which is the podcast of The Late Show with me, Stephen Colbert. And I'm here with my uh, producer of the podcast, Becca. Hi, Becca. Hi, Stephen. So what do people get when they listen to The Late Show Pod Show? Let's, let's sell this thing. The extended moments, for sure, because we run out of time for broadcast, but we have plenty of time on the podcast. It's kind of like being a live audience member of the show because you get things that no one else hears. Listen to The Late Show Pod Show with Stephen Colbert wherever you get your podcasts. This episode is brought to you by ZipRecruiter. When you want the best, you have to act fast, especially when hiring for your business. You want to find the most talented people before the competition scoops them up. And the best way to do that? ZipRecruiter. ZipRecruiter finds top talent fast. In fact, four out of five employers who post on ZipRecruiter get a quality candidate within the first day. And right now, you can try it for free at ZipRecruiter.com slash Spotify. ZipRecruiter, the smartest way to hire. Let's talk about these banks failing. Let's start with SVB. Everything in, in the financial world has like an acronym. So anyway, yeah. SVB and in, in First Republic, uh, you started to see all of these things happen. For people who are in tech, what was Silicon Valley Bank and why was this bank so important to the tech sector? And the last question, I mean, the, not the last question, but the next question would be, why did they fail? SVB failed mostly uh, because they made poor decisions. Um, there's in banking kind of in banking 101, you learn that you've got to what they call hedge your risk. Um, and the thing about it that made this a bit complicated or, or a bit hard for folks to really get their hands around was it wasn't that SVB was buying a bunch of risky, you know, uh, triple tranche, double E rated mortgage backed securities. You know, they weren't doing, they were buying US government treasuries. And that's the kind of stuff that the Federal Reserve and what government regulators want you to buy because it's thought of as safe, it's thought of as a, a cash equivalent, uh, sim uh, seemingly. And it's it's not the kind of thing that's generally going to cause a, a collapse in your bank. 
What they didn't do, though, was hedge for the risk that prices would fall significantly and that would move yields up. And that's exactly what happened. And the Federal Reserve, who raised uh, interest rates, signaled that this was going to happen uh, for months before they started. And then as they were doing it, the rates went up and that pushed the prices down. And so the amount of uh, holdings that Silicon Valley Bank had in, in government treasury bonds, well, what it was worth declined. But they didn't put that onto their books to tell people, oh, hey, our investments are declining. They held it in a, another sort of area called a hold to maturity or HTM kind of bond package, which they didn't have to mark down. So as the value was declining, they knew the value was declining, but they weren't disclosing that the value was declining to you know investors or folks out there in the markets. And then once people started redeeming or saying, hey, I need my deposits back, we've, we've heard some things, um, I need to get this money back, well, then they had to start selling. And when you sell, well, you now you've got to lock those losses in. So they lost a bunch of money in markets by investing and not hedging, not basically uh, backing up or you know doing some things to secure or insure themselves against risk. And as that happened, more clients started saying, hey, no, we need our money back. Because a lot of these clients had money over the two hundred fifty thousand um, dollar FDIC limit for Peter Thiel actually led a run on the bank though. Is that fair to say? Whether he led it or not, he was certainly a part of it. Um, there was a big run on the bank, and Peter Thiel, I think, was was vocal about moving his money, uh, as were some others. But um, yeah, people just moved their money out of these banks because they were worried. They weren't insured. They had money that was over $250,000. And the FDIC says, if you have more than $250,000 in the bank account, you're taking the risk. We're not going to insure that. If the bank goes under, you would lose that money. So as a lot of these uh, folks in Silicon Valley started seeing that, oh man, this bank could be risky. There could be a risk that it fails and goes under. They thought, well, I could lose my money. Let me take it all out put it in you know, somewhere else, either a bigger bank, uh, which is thought, okay, those aren't going to fail, uh, but just get it out of SVB. And that's been the same thinking when it's come to First Republic um, and PacWest, which is facing uh, a huge drop in its, share, in its share price today, is it's a lot of people with a lot more money than that $250,000 in individual bank accounts that are not insured saying, this bank might fail, I need to get my money out of it. And when that happens, because the bank has a lot of money invested in things that have lost money, if it sells those assets to be able to give its customers their money back, well, then the bank doesn't have enough money to pay back the customers and it fails. Uh, that's a, that is more than a, more than a notion, more than a mouthful. How, you mentioned interest rates, but how much, is, how much of this has been caused by the Federal Reserve's interest rates? Would the banks be failing if the interest rates were lower? That's a complicated question. You can't no one knows for sure. Um, the problem with Silicon Valley was, like I said, they had invested a lot of money in these treasuries and they were long term. So, you know, uh, you can get treasury bonds from one month up to 30 years. And SVB was invested in a lot of the longer dated. So a lot of folks have come out and said this was just malpractice by um, SVB uh, and, and by First Republic as well. They failed Banking 101. They didn't insure themselves. They didn't take the proper steps to hedge their risk or reduce the amount of risk they had being in these longer dated things. Because again, the idea was, we'll put it in here, we'll hold it until it matures in that 5, 10, 20, or 30 year time frame, and then we'll get it all back and there'll be no losses. Uh, and it turned out they had to sell them and there were losses. The rate, the rate increases 
made that situation much worse because it was incredibly fast. Um, if you're talking about just the pace um, relative to where rates were, it's the fastest in history, the Federal Reserve raising rates. And so banks should have been prepared for this, and a lot of them weren't, and they didn't take the necessary steps to protect themselves. That's the headline. Um, what happened with rates is they got incredibly high and that made asset values decline. So you have this thing where the Fed directly led, the Fed's actions led directly to the decline in these asset prices. However, the bank should have been prepared for that and should have protected themselves and their clients' money against that happening. Um, so Yes, there was an action by the Federal Reserve that led to these losses and these collapses, but I think it's hard to say, okay, high rates were the cause of this. High rates were the cause of the losses, but the banks should have been prepared and should have hedged that risk and protected their clients' money better. My last question for you is, um, I'd be remiss if I didn't mention something about the banks that aren't failing these days, and that's our minority-owned banks. How have you seen um, Black-owned banks fare during this banking crisis, and a crazy question here, but is this something that banks like SVP, SVB, excuse me, First Republican Signature can learn from our minority-owned banks? Hmm, that's an interesting question. I've been talking to a number of Black-owned banks and small community banks during this time, and they say what they're hearing is a lot of worry from clients. Uh, one of the reasons that, you know, Let's be clear, Black-owned banks are small banks because Black folks just don't have the capital. Um, I've written about this a number of times before. Black banks, I think, in total, have about as much money in deposits um, as J.P. Morgan Chase makes in profit in a bad quarter, right? Like that's the total amount in all Black-owned banks. It's somewhere between five and seven billion dollars, which is, you know, Chase makes that and I think they made 52 billion in profits this last quarter. So 10% of JP Morgan Chase's profits, not their revenue, not their assets, the total assets in black banks are about the size of JP about are about 10% of JP Morgan's profit in one quarter. That's how small a sector we're talking about. But those banks mostly don't have folks with more than $250,000 in an individual account. And most of those banks, they personally know those clients with a lot of money. And there are things that you can do to protect deposits. There are insurance, uh, various insurance forms and money market accounts and things that a bank can do to protect those deposits. So these banks have largely avoided some of the issues that plagued First Republic, SVB, because they just have a different depositor base. It's different people putting money in those banks. And those banks have also hedged the risk and they know know that if there's a run on banks, folks are going to pull out of Black-owned banks first because that just is where it happens. But they tell me they've actually even seen some inflows because people understand, okay, you know, I, might, I want to take my money out of First Republic, which is a actually a very large bank. They had about $200 billion in deposits. Put it into some of these smaller banks because I can talk to the CEO directly. I can call him up uh, and he'll talk to me. And he'll pay attention to my funds if I have, you know, even $400,000, which at First Republic or at SVB, you are a small client if you came in with $400,000. Um, so it's it's been actually not, I wouldn't say it's been a boon for these Black-owned banks or small banks, but it has certainly provided them some opportunities to talk to clients about, hey, here's why we're not having those same issues. We haven't invested our money this way. Most of them are just making loans and, and not doing as much investing like some of the big banks. So it's 
it's caused a lot of concern among uh, Black-owned banks' clients, but I think it's also provided opportunities for some mm-hmm. of them to reassure clients that, hey, our our banks are safe. I told y'all he was a brilliant journalist, didn't I? <laughs> Dion Rabon, thank you so much for joining the Bukari Sellers podcast. I love reading whatever you put out, watching whatever you put out, listening to whatever you put out. Um, it's just a learning experience, something that I can go on CNN and act smart because I know you now. Uh, so appreciate your time, brother. Thank you. Hey, thanks so much for having me on, Bakari. I appreciate it.